I'd like to invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant to them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will, bring, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Lord, everything that happens in this era, God, is such a lesson to us. God, you want to speak so much to us from this this morning. God, I pray, Lord, anything, Father, that you would have me to say today, or God, that, that, or God, even anything I'm not prepared to say, Lord, I ask, would you speak this morning? And God, I pray in Jesus' name that you, you know where every person in this room is. And God, I believe today that you want to speak to every heart. So Lord, I pray, would you soften the soils of our heart, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see, for your name and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, church family, we're going to continue in our series, uh, The Story of God, where we've been looking at the entire story uh, of God's working throughout biblical history by breaking it up into several different smaller eras. And we've been doing this series for several reasons, but first because we want people to better know and understand the Bible, the truth of God's Word. And so many people can be intimidated by the Bible. So we want you to have a, a, a better understanding of the workings of God throughout the history of Scripture. Also, we want you to know who God is. And, and that's what we, we find out who God is. We relate to Him by understanding how He has revealed Himself in Scriptures. There are so many people out there today that will say that God is this, or my God is this, or this is how God uh, responds to things. And the reality is, is if it's based on any Anything other than the truths of Scripture, then it can be wrong. It can be based on emotion or half-truths. And so we have to know uh, the Scriptures to be able to understand that. And finally, we're doing this series because, church family, as we see how God has worked in His overall story, we also get an opportunity to know how God is wanting to move and work in us, what He's wanting to do, where our story plays a part in God's story. So the title of our message today is the story of God in the era of the Exodus. As we saw this morning in this era in God's story, we are introduced to the incredible story of God working among his people by bringing them out of slavery in the land of Egypt. This moment in God's story is likely one of the most familiar in our world today. Just the person of Moses himself has been celebrated by Jews and Christians for thousands of years. And the story of the Exodus and the wanderings of God's people in the wilderness have been depicted in books, in media, in children's books, in film for generations. Even just this past week as I was reading about Moses and preparing for this, when I think of Moses, I cannot help but see the picture of Charlton Heston in the movie The Ten Commandments with the 
the most incredible hair and beard in the history of the world. He looked like he fit in Lion King better than he did uh, in that scene. And I hear that voice when I hear Moses. I hear Charlton Heston's voice. But the reality is, is that the importance of this era in God's story cannot be overstated. And so like we've said in recent weeks, we're going to answer four questions uh, in each of these eras to help, us, uh, to help us really glean what God wants us to glean from this. So the first, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time today, is question number one. What are the major happenings during this season in God's story? Now we need to recognize that this season in God's story, the exodus in the wilderness, really, where we left off last week with Joseph, is that we're spanning 400 to 450 years of time at the least. The books of the Bible that are attributed that speak into this era is the second half of the book of Exodus, or the first half of the book of Exodus, uh, or actually all the book of Exodus, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so four of the books of Moses speak specifically into this era. But, but this era is really broken up into three different moments. It's broken up into the bondage, the exodus, and the wilderness. And so let me give you a little bit of information from each of these. The first major moment in this era in God's story is the bondage moment. Now, to really be able to understand this era in God's story, we need to know how the people of God got into this situation. A lot of people can tell you, well, what did Moses do when, uh, when he came to set the people free? Well, they would say, well, he came to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt. But if you were to ask the question, well, how did the people of God get into slavery into Egypt? They may not be able to answer that question But to be able to answer that question, you've got to go back to Joseph, who we talked about last week. Remember, Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob, who God ended up changing his name to Israel. And if you remember, God had raised Joseph up to be second in command over all of Egypt after an incredible story of hardships. And then ultimately, through Joseph, God used his influence in Egypt during a great famine to sustain his entire family. And so as the family of Joseph, under the, under the blessings of Pharaoh, they make their way to Egypt. Pharaoh gives the children of Israel, gives Joseph's family the land of Goshen for them to settle in. And then that ultimately all was well is that they were cared for. But then the Bible says that Joseph died. And once Joseph died is where the people of Israel, where their troubles really began. So look with me, Exodus chapter 1 beginning in verse 8. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Because the people of the sons of Israel are more mightier than we, come let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pitmom and Ramses, but, they, but, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigor, rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of labor in the field, all of their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. 
Now, while this is only a summary of what is taking place, again, we have to remember when Joseph dies, and so that's roughly 400 years, and then the next king comes who does not know Joseph nor his people, and he begins to be intimidated by them because they are growing so rapidly, so they enslave the people. But the Bible says the more harshly that they treated the children of Israel, the more that they multiplied. And in fact, it was a supernatural level of multiplication. Now, here's the numbers on this. Roughly 70 people, there were roughly 70 people who went into Egypt who were of the family of Joseph. Fast forward 400 years, and now there are roughly 3 million people of the children of Israel. This is God fulfilling the covenant that he gave to Abraham. Remember he told Abraham, I will make your descendants like the stars in the sky. God is being faithful to the people of Israel. And so while they're there, now this is what we need to hear. The the Bible makes it clear, even in Genesis chapter 15, that God was aware that God always had a plan that his people would go into a foreign land, that they would be oppressed for 400 years, but then God would bring them out to be a mighty people with full of wealth. And we'll see that that takes place. And sometimes we don't always see God's greater story that's working, but God was working a greater story. So the first thing we need to see in this era is that God's people are in bondage for close to 400 years, but in that time, God multiplies them and makes them a mighty people. The second major moment in the era in God's story in the Exodus moment is this Exodus moment. This is the moment where the people of God are taken out of Egypt. And this happens in the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. Now the word Exodus itself shows that that's kind of the highlight of this entire book. The word Exodus means the going out or the departure. So the title of this book is the book of the departure. Now let me give you some highlights of this Exodus moment among God's people. That Exodus moment really has to begin with looking at the person of Moses. In the first two chapters of Exodus, we find Pharaoh calling for every male that was to be born of the children of Israel to be killed by being thrown into the Nile. It was a terrible demonic practice that we can see uh, was ultimately driven by his fear of multiplication. And so they were, by taking all the males, by killing the males, then they would no longer multiply. And by the way, as a side note is the killing of children to manage population growth is still a demonic practice that is being advocated for even today. But that being the case, the Bible says, though, that Moses' mother who wanted to save her child when she had weaned him, that she made a a basket out of sticks. She weaved a wicker basket, and she waterproofed it as best as possible, and she put Moses in the basket, and she pushed him out into the Nile. What was she doing? She was hoping for a miracle. Is that she did the best she could that he would survive, and then she pushed him into, uh, into the Nile. And the Bible says that some ways down the river that Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. And she finds this basket, she opens it up, and she sees this baby, this Jewish baby. She has pity on him, and so she adopts him. And so by God's sovereignty, Moses is raised in Egypt. Now, we don't know much about his early life from there. The next moment we see Moses is, Moses is he is a man. 
But he must have knew something about his Jewish heritage because the Bible says that in one instance he sees an Egyptian man uh, abusing one of his Jewish brothers. And so he comes to his defense and he ultimately kills this Egyptian man. He tries to hide his body in the sand, but he is eventually discovered. And so Moses gets out of Dodge, man. He leaves Egypt as a murderer. He flees to the land of Midian. He finds a wife. He he starts having children. He is starting over his life, assuming that he has put God and everything behind him. But we find out that God knew exactly where Moses was. So look with me in in Exodus chapter 3. The Bible says this is after Moses has, uh, God has appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He's told him to take his sandals off because the place where he is is holy ground. And this is what God says. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them, up from, bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are opposing them. And you can imagine this moment, Moses is thinking, well, hey, that's great, God. But then verse 10, it gets real to him. He says, therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now all of a sudden this has gotten real. Uh, Moses goes from being a spectator in God's plan to a participator in God's plan. In verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that, I, that, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought these people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Now you can follow out the rest of the story. Moses argues with God a little bit further. God finally gives Moses some concessions. He gives Aaron to be his mouthpiece and he endows him with a staff to be able to perform great uh, uh, miraculous works. And then eventually he follows God's call to go. Now, I really felt from the Lord that I needed to remind us here this morning. Church family, God may not call you to physically bring people out of bondage. But this morning, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, God is still looking for people to go. God is still searching for people to answer the call to go. To go and be those who would proclaim Jesus Christ to the world who are in bondage to sin that they may could come out and be set free. And and I want to ask this question today. Is God calling some of you to go and are you willing to answer the call? That may be just by going to your neighbors to, to do our evangelism strategy, to pray, see, share, and invite. Or God may be calling some of you to full-time vocational ministry. God's putting a burden in your heart to, to preach God's word, to tell others about him. As we have been searching for our next student pastor to lead in our ministry, I found out a, 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 a staggering statistic here recently that right now among Southern Baptist churches, there are over 1,000 Fully funded student minister positions that are going unfilled. And the reason why is because there are not enough young men who are filling those positions. There's not enough young men who are answering God's call to go. And church family, my prayer is here at Enon is that we're sending church. That God calls up young men out of here that we're able to send them in the days ahead. 
So this is the first moment we see there in the Exodus moment begins with Moses. The Exodus moment continues with God using Moses to do mighty works to set his people free. And this is where we see Moses coming in and unleashing the ten plagues upon Egypt. Now one thing to know here, while the plagues are found in Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 11... That while God is pouring out these plagues upon the land of Egypt, that over and over again the land of Goshen, the land that's a suburb of Egypt there where the children of Israel have lived, is that it stays protected. God made a distinction between his people and the people of Exodus. Let me tell you briefly what these plagues were. In Exodus 7, we see the first plague was God turning all the water in Egypt, the Nile, into blood for seven days. In Exodus 8, we find three different plagues. First, we see God unleashing frogs on the land. Then we see God unleashing gnats on the land. And then fourthly, we see the plague where God unleashes flies on the land. And as you'll see, these plagues continually get more severe as they go. In Exodus 9, we see the fifth plague, which was a disease on the livestock of the Egyptians. All the livestock of the Egyptians died during this plague, but the livestock of the Israelites continue to thrive. Also in Exodus 9, we see the sixth plague, which was God sending boils, which meant great sores came upon the skin of the people in Egypt. And then finally in Exodus 9, we see the seventh plague, which was God sending hell and fire to rain down on the earth as has never been seen before. It was hell that ran down on the land in such a way that it was killing people who were caught out in the land. In Exodus 10, we see the eighth plague, which was God sending locusts on the land that would eat and devour every green thing that which was left behind that the hell did not destroy. Also in Exodus 10, we see God sending the ninth plague, which was darkness all over the land for three days. And I studied this a little bit this last week. The Bible says that it was darkness that could be felt. And it went on to say that while the children of Israel had lights within their homes, there was a distinction there between them and among the people of Egypt. Literally, God would not let candles be lit in Egypt. It was a darkness that could be felt. The Bible says that no one left his place for three days. It was such pitch black darkness that wherever you are, once you had wandered and bumped into things as much as you could, is that you sat down where you were and you did not leave for three days. Can you imagine what that would feel like? And then finally in Exodus 12, the worst of all the plagues was unleashed on the people of Egypt, which was the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The Bible says that the morning after the 10th plague that there was a great cry in Egypt and that every home was touched with death. In each of these moments of plague, the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God and he would not have let Israel to go free. God, ultimately, God was doing this, was doing more than just setting his people free, but he was doing it in such a way that all the inhabitants of the world would hear about the God of Israel. In the past story of the people of God with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they would have been unknown. The one true God would have been unknown to the rest of the world. But now God had risen up a mighty nation, and now God was distinguishing himself as the one true God of all of heaven and earth. The Bible says after the tenth plague that finally Pharaoh said to the people of Israel that they could be 
set free. And the Bible says that as they are leaving Egypt, the people of God feared them so much that they were giving them gold and giving them clothing, giving them much wealth as they were leaving. The Bible says they plundered the Egyptians as they left. In many ways, God was giving them restitution for 400 years of work of slavery. He paid their wages as they left. And then in Genesis chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, or Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 and 41, rather, records the moment the people left, saying, Now the time the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And they went and, went and Moses began to lead them to the wildernesses beyond Egypt. But the final great moment of deliverance for the people of God was then he parted the Red Sea. The Bible says that as they are making their way out of Egypt, that Pharaoh's heart was again hardened again, and he began to pursue the people of God. And they were in a situation where they were trapped. They had the vast Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's army and chariots coming in behind them. But the Bible says that God sent a pillar of fire behind them to guard them in this moment. And then Moses stands at that incredible moment and says to the people of God, Fear not, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And then in Exodus chapter 12 verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus God led them across the Red Sea. This was one of the most incredible miracles the world had ever seen. This miracle would define them for generations to come that they had the one, they followed the one true God. But God didn't end there. Once they went on the other side, God then allowed Pharaoh and his armies to enter into this by the way of the sea also. And just as they got the entire army into the Red Sea, God closed the waters over them and destroyed the armies of Egypt, thus again showing that he was the one true God. Now as wonderful as this is to see in the Old Testament and celebrate, now, church family, as I was walking across the street this morning praying, I felt the Lord stir something up in my heart that some of you needed to be reminded of today is that God is still a God who is able to make a way where there is no way. Some of you may be standing right now on the brink of a precipice that you just can't get across, but God's about to blow a wind into your life of the Holy Spirit. God is about to do something in your heart and life and make a way where there is no way. And sometimes, even when you just got to stand still, God can send a pillar of fire to guard you while you wait. And then from there, the third and final major moment in this era in God's story is the wilderness moment. After the children of Israel have come out of Egypt, they begin a season of wandering in the wilderness before God allows them to enter into the promised land, which was the land of Canaan. This is a land that God had promised Abraham that he would give to his descendants. The wilderness season uh, ultimately lasts for about 40 years as the people of God are making their way to the promised land. The books of Leviticus and Numbers and the books of Deuteronomy in the second half of the book of Exodus speak to this season. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on with so many books of Scripture speaking into that that we can't cover it all today. But very briefly, let me give you some highlights of the wilderness moments. 
First, we see that in the wilderness, God did supernatural provision and direction for his people. Is that God led them in the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. God provided food for his children by raining down manna from heaven, which was bread every day, and giving them water from a rock, and quail came in in the evenings. And the Bible says that even during all that 40 years, that their shoes did not wear out and their clothes did not wear. It's a wonderful picture of God providing for his people that mirrors, again, what God would ultimately do for us in Christ. Is that Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread to remind us of that manna from heaven. The same picture is that in the Old Testament they were led by a pillar of fire and a cloud by day is that we are led now by the Holy Spirit. But it shows that God was leading his people. Also in the wilderness, God gave his people the law of the Lord. One of the most significant moments in the Old Testament happens during this era. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses ascends up to Mount Sinai and he comes down with the Ten Commandments that were given to him by God. These Ten Commandments uh, ultimately is what they would be used for their moral law, is what God would give them to follow uh, to be his people. But even for us today, did you know that most of Western society's laws are based around the morality that we see in the Ten Commandments? And that they play a role even today. The Bible says it is through the law that we, are, we know that we are sinners, that we need the grace of God. The Ten Commandments still hold such an important place in the life of those of us who are followers of Jesus. Also, while Moses was on Mount Sinai, we see he gave them the tabernacle and the worship practices for the people of God. The tabernacle was also referred to as the tent of meeting. See, they were God's special people, and now God was giving them a way to consistently meet with Him and to bring their offerings of worship and sacrifices for their sin offerings. Inside the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant and was several different priests would serve in different ways. And this is important to know that God's people did not worship the Ark. They did not worship the priests. Is that these things were there as instruments, as tools to help them ultimately worship The one true God. Also in the wilderness we see that God's people were consistently in rebellion against them. As we've seen in the story of God thus far. Since sin entered the world at Adam. We were a broken sinful people. Remember last week we talked about the patriarchs. One of the things to see from the patriarchs was that they were broken sinful people. There was nothing special about them other than God's grace to call them special We see that even here as God has brought them by miraculous works into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Is that the very earliest great sin we see is that while Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God, he was there 40 days and 40 nights and the people got afraid and were tired of waiting on him. And so they fashioned for themselves a golden calf and began to worship it instead of the one true God. It shows again their rebellious and sinful heart. Ultimately, this happened throughout the wilderness season is that these people would sin, they would, God would discipline them, then they would repent, and then they would sin again. And then finally, in the wilderness, we see the people's lack of faith to enter the promised land ended with God's judgment. In Numbers 13 and 14, They finally make their way to the Jordan River and the land of Canaan is on the other side and God is going to lead them into the promised land. But he tells them to send out 12 spies 
12 men from the uh, different tribes of Israel. They come back and they report of all the wonderful things that are in the land. But then they say this, they are afraid of the people in the land. They say, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. But only Joshua and Caleb say, no, for surely we can take the land. But the Bible says the whole congregation of Israel begins to be afraid and grumble against Moses. And finally God said, enough is enough. And he told the people of God, he he sent judgment upon them. And he said, now none of you will enter into the promised land. Everyone 20 years old and upwards, you will have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until you all die out. Then your children will be the ones that are allowed to go in. In fact, the only men from the first generation who were allowed to go in were Joshua and Caleb. Because they believed the word of the Lord. So this whole day wander for 40 years. That whole first generation dies out. The next generation God has raised up. They get back to the banks of the Jordan River again 40 years later. And Moses gives them the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. Which is essentially they had an opportunity to re-up their covenant with God. To say we are going to be God's people. And they say yes we will be God's people. God raises up Joshua who will lead God's people, will be his successor, will lead God's people into the promised land. And then Moses dies. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 31, verses 4 through 7, it records the death of Moses. The Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And and he, speaking of God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. Church family, this could speak so much to us this morning, the death of Moses. One of the first things that should speak to us today is, let it be our prayer, O Lord, that every day I have breath, may it be used to serve the Lord. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as retirement. There's just moving on to the next task. And then this, again, picture of God burying Moses. You know, the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God attended to Moses. So this is the overall picture of what happens in this season. Now question number two. What is the key scripture or theme we need to know from this era in God's story? Very quickly, to be able to know the theme of this era in God's story, you've really got to break it up into two moments. You've got to look at the the bondage and exodus moment, and then you've got to look at the wilderness moment. The first theme of exodus is obviously rescue. The first theme is rescue. It is God hearing the cries of his people and he brings them out with a mighty hand. But there's also an underlying theme there in rescue is that God rescues for his glory. You know, we see in this picture that God could have very easily brought the people out a little bit sooner than they were. The Bible says it was God who was hardening Pharaoh's heart. But ultimately, God was not just rescuing his people But he was also rescuing his people so that his name would be established in all the earth. Now what should that say to us here today? When Jesus Christ, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, when he became the Savior and Lord of our lives and we received him, praise the Lord that God had mercy on us. 
Praise God that God had compassion on us. Praise God that he saw us in our burdens and he set us free. And that is a, 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 a something that we can never put words to the vastness of God taking our wrath on himself in Jesus on the cross. But remember this. God didn't just save us for us. He saved us for His glory. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Church family, if you've been redeemed, rescued by Jesus, is your life giving glory to God? Or, or has God done all the work and we are robbing Him of His right reward in our lives? But the first, first theme is rescue. The second theme in the, wander, in, the, in the wilderness wanderings is refining. It's refining. God was getting his people prepared to be his people in the promised land. You see, they had lived 400 years among the Egyptians and pagan uh, practices of worship. And, and, and they had never really had God leading and directing their lives. They were still kind of Lord of their own lives. And so obviously as we see in those scriptures that rebellious heart is that God is disciplining them. He's refining them, but he's also teaching them. He's teaching them how to be dependent for their daily bread. To be dependent for them, for, their, for his protection and his leading. He was showing them how to be the people of God. I heard a pastor say one time at the beginning of Exodus, you see God bringing his people out of Egypt. In the second part of Exodus, you see God getting Egypt out of his people. We see God showing them how to be His children. God does the same thing to us today, by the way. When He saves us, He rescues us, and then He begins that work of refining us to be conformed in His image. Question number three. What are some likely lessons God wants us to learn today from this era in His story? Now, like we've said in recent weeks, this series is more than just a history lesson. It's not just going and saying, God, what have you done? But it is also, God, what are you speaking to me today? The scriptures are not just a record of what God has done, but what God is doing. And so if you've kind of zoned out thus far, I want you to zone back in here just for a moment. I believe God has a word for some of us in this room today. So let me give you three quick lessons we can learn from this era. First, this era in God's story reminds us that God hears and rescues His people. God hears and rescues his people. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 he says, And the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. God took pity on them. He saw them where they were, and their sigh went up to God. Church family, some of you this morning... You may be in bondage. You may be in bondage to your sin because you've never truly given your life to Christ. Or maybe you're in bondage to some emotional struggle that nobody sees but you. You are weighed down with sadness and grief. Some of you are in bondage today to some physical ailment in your life that, that, that maybe people see or people don't see. But what this passage shows us and what this season shows us is that God is attuned to the lives of his people. He sees us where we are and when we respond, he reacts. Now listen, are there seasons and moments in our lives when we call out to God and he doesn't respond in, in the way that we want him to? Or even in, in the timing that we want him to? Absolutely. Just like those first 
generations in Egypt that called out to God. God was working a greater plan. He was sovereign over all things, and ultimately he was sustaining his people. But they didn't see, they didn't see what God was doing on the other side. And that may be the case sometimes for us, but church family, may we never become jaded to the point to where we stop believing that God is a God who can still rescue and work miracles. I can tell you in just the last few months, I have seen marriages restored. In just the last few months, I have seen people set free in their minds. In just the last few months, I've seen people saved. I am seeing God at work, and some of you are seeing God at work here today. God is still a God who hears us when we cry. One of the passages that we pray here at Enon, and this may be for some of you this morning, is Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. When I, when I stand and pray over this parking lot on Sunday mornings and pray that God draws people, I pray, oh Lord, as people leave, I pray that, that spiritually speaking, there'd be chains left in the parking lot. And I want you to know this today, by the mercies of God, He wants to do that in your lives today. If you'll just come to Him this morning. Secondly, this era in God's story teaches us that God instructs and purifies His people. Again, God's refining and working in their lives compares very much to what God wants to do in the life of Christians. Essentially, the children of Israel, they were the people of God, but they didn't know how to live like the people of God. They still had some some sinfulness, some rebellion, some stuff in their hearts and lives that they needed to be cleansed of, to be purified from. And the same is true for those of us in this room today. Some of you in this room today, you may be in a place to where God is needing to do some refining work in your heart. And this should cause us to ask questions today in this room. Say, friends, what is God wanting to do in me? Do I have any practices in my life that God does not approve of? Maybe to ask questions like, where am I resisting the will of God that is only going to affect me negatively, by the way? God's trying to refine you of something, you're better off without it. And where is God trying to purify and refine me today? Church family, I am so thankful that we are the people of God, that His grace is sufficient, that even when I mess up, there's never a moment in time where God gives up on me. But there is still the disciplining hand of the Lord, and we miss often God's best. Remember that first generation that would not go into the promised land? They rebelled against God, God gave grace. They rebelled against God, God gave grace. They rebelled against God, God gave grace. But finally, at one point, God said to them, Listen, this generation, I cannot let you go in because you've resisted me too much. And so then they were unable to enter into the promised land. And it would only be their children who were able to come in again. There's never a point for those who are followers in Jesus where God says to you, because of your sinfulness, I'm never going to let you into heaven. That will never happen. Praise God for the grace and mercy of Jesus that is greater than our sin. But that being said, we can miss God's best in this life because of our sinfulness. There's times where God may be wanting to do a work in your neighborhood. God may be wanting to do a work in your family. God may be wanting to use you, but you've resisted the Lord so much so, and your sinfulness continues on, and your rebellion continues on to where God looks at us sometimes and says, I can't use that one even though I want to. But if you're here today, 
and you want personal revival. Listen, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. If you are here today and you are in need of personal revival, you want more of Jesus in your heart and life, then it's not always sinfulness that separates us from God, but in more cases than not, it is. Maybe today you'd get real with God and say, God, refine me. Do whatever you want to do in me. Because I want you more than anything else in the world. And I promise you, you will never regret a prayer like that. And the third truth we see in this lesson is that this lesson teaches us that God does have a promised land for His children. He was all, God's always leading us somewhere. And the promised land, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that promised land is a picture, not of heaven. Listen, when they got in the promised land, they're going to fight battles and stuff, okay? That's, that's not heaven, all right? What the promised land is a picture for them, it was them doing God's will, being in the center of His will, being His people. For us, the promised land is us being the children of Jesus, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and operating in the center of God's will. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to meet when people, when God is awakening their soul to spiritual things. When God is awakening their soul to Him. I got to have a conversation just this last week with a, a, a young man who God had done a work in his life in our Wednesday night better man and awakened his life to, hey, I need to be following God. And so he and I started to meet and talk about start talk about his life. And at one point in the conversation, I, I love being able to do this according to Scripture, is to lean forward and call him by name and say, man, I want to let you know one thing today. God's got more for you than this. God's got more in life for you than just getting up in the morning and getting a paycheck and paying your bills and, and, and feeding your kids and going home and going to sleep. There's a place where God is in the center of your life. And yes, you're going to still have to pay bills and you're still going to have to go to work and do those things. But there's something more behind it that's driving it because you're a child of God. Church family, this morning there's a promised land for God's people to be in the center of his will. But you can't bypass what God is wanting to do in the wilderness before you get there. Let God refine you. And then lastly this morning, the fourth and final question we must answer today is, where are the redemptive threads in this story? Where is Jesus in this story? We talk about the redemptive threads. Ultimately, we're talking about those places in Scripture that point us to the promise that God was always working a plan to bring about Jesus. Again, all the Old Testament is pointing forward towards the cross, and God's getting that point across to us. And there's so much in this Era. Listen, this is probably one of the hardest parts of, of doing this series was having to skip over so much in this era that points to Jesus. But the first one is probably the one we need to look at today. And I'm going to ask Brother Ron if he'll come. And... But when the Lord is preparing to bring his people out of bondage, the last plague was the death of the firstborn sons. The Bible said to the children of Israel that there was something that they had to do to avoid that. And it was called the Passover. And even to this day, Jews still celebrate the Passover with the Seder Supper. And Moses told them that they, they had to dress like they were ready to go, keep their shoes on, their cloak on. Have, I mean, they, they would be ready to leave. That they were to eat bread that was unleavened because to signify that they were about to hurry to get out of the land. They didn't have time to let it be leavened. They were to eat bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness that they had of their time in slavery. And there were several other things, but the, the key pinnacle moment of it was this. They were to take a lamb, and they were to kill the lamb, and they were to take the blood of the lamb and 
cover the doorpost of their homes in the blood of the Lamb. And when God sent the destroyer, the angel of death, to come, is that when it would recognize the blood, it would pass over that house and God's judgment would be assuaged. Several thousand years later, on the Passover evening, as Jesus has had Passover meal with his disciples, the Bible says that he goes out in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is arrested. And he begins to make his way to the cross. And he becomes the Lamb of God, is what the Bible says. Is that Jesus gives his life for the sin of the world. And he pours out his blood. And the Bible says for those of us who receive what Jesus did by faith, we give our lives to Jesus. Then spiritually speaking, it is as if his blood washes us and cleanses us. And so... When we stand before God in death or at His return, and the judgment of God is going to be poured out on the earth, which it will be one day, the Bible says that judgment will pass us by. Because when God looks upon us, He will not see the sins of Zach. He will not see my failures. He will not see. He will see the blood of His Son, and He will say, That one is mine. That one is mine. For thousands of years, church, God's been saying to the world, I love you. And I'm giving my life for you. Here I am. And maybe you're here this morning and you need Jesus. The Bible says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When you fully surrender your life to Jesus, say, God, here is my whole life. Save me, O oh Lord. And he can save you. You've got to give your whole life to Him. You've got to say, God, I'm tired of doing it my way. That's called repentance. You turn. Say, God, I'm going to fully follow you. I give my life to you. Maybe this morning you need to give your life to Jesus. You can do that right now. You can bow your heads and just call out to Him and say, Jesus, save me. He'll hear that prayer in your heart to the Lord. Say, Jesus, save me. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are a child of God. But God's got you in a wilderness. He's trying to refine you and you are pressing against Him. Maybe you would repent of your sin this morning and say, God, I don't want to miss you. I don't want to miss your, miss your best. God, I turn from my sin. I turn to you. Maybe some of you need to respond in the wilderness this morning. But this is what we do at the conclusion of each service. We're going to have Brother Ken's going to come and lead us in a hymn, a song of invitation as he comes. Take some time here to meet with God. He hears us when we call it to Him. If you want to come here to this altar and kneel, you can. If you need somebody to pray with you, you feel free to come. Our pastors will be up front. If you'd like to join this church, you feel free to do that as we sing. But do not let the Lord pass by today without you doing work with God. Father, we love you this morning. God, I pray in Jesus' name, would you... Give us the courage and strength to respond. Would you move in the hearts and lives of your people in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you stand if you need to come? Come now as we sing.